This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. So we're going to be talking today about resilience and aging, and I am a professor of psychiatry here at UC San Diego, and it's my pleasure to moderate this panel that's going to include Dr. Colin Depp, who is also a professor of psychiatry, uh, my colleague for, for many years, and also has a role at our Clinical and Translational Research Institute. We also have Joe Garbanzos, who is the California State President of the AARP. And we also have um, <laughs> Mr. Irving Tragen, <laughs> um, who will introduce himself when it comes time to, uh, to speak. So we'll start off with Dr. Depp. Colin? Well, thank you so much. It's nice to see you all, and uh, I'm really excited to have been part of this event, so thank you. Um, So I've been studying and interested in resilience for a a long time, and working in the Stein Institute, we've uh, started off with just basically the question of how can we figure out what successful aging is, and so we looked in the literature, and we found what researchers had previously defined as successful aging, and Included things like not having a lot of disabilities or any disabilities and um, not having diseases. Basically not aging, really. Uh, And so then we actually asked older people, a thousand or some older people, to basically say, do you feel like you're successfully aging? And most of them gave themselves an 8, a 9, or a 10 out of a 10 scale. And most so... Uh, we uh, asked older adults, the second question is, what is successful aging? What are you saying when you say successful aging? And the term resilience came up a lot. Uh, and so when older people, I think, uh, think about uh, resilience, it's, um, it is in successful aging, it is bouncing back from stress and, and maintaining that ability to adapt and change to keep uh, the lights on, so to speak. And so um, I think uh, what's really interesting is, at least from a science perspective, most uh, interventions in healthcare is, is really geared towards treating illnesses and not necessarily treating the body's repair shop or your uh, emotional repair shop, I think, uh, in terms of uh, bouncing back from stress. But as you saw in the uh, presentation today, or one of the posters, that there, is, there are uh, things that one can do to become more resilient, and a lot having to do with... Um, positive uh, engagement in positive events and savoring uh, as well as uh, engaging in things that one enjoys despite stress. Um, And so I think there's a lot of research and a lot of contribution uh, uh, that can be made around understanding and promoting resilience at the individual level. And I think the last thing I would say is that it also uh, has to do with uh, resilience of communities or groups of people and not just resilience to the Padre season, but resilience to things like uh, COVID-19. And we sort of saw variation in communities in terms of how resilient they were um, to, to major societal-level stressors like that. And so I think with that, I'll uh, love to turn it over to our AARP leader. Thank you. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. So as introduced, I'm Joe Garbanzos. I'm part of the leadership team at ARP California. So ARP members, I work for you, right? <laughs> Terrific. So a little bit about ARP, because when you, when you say ARP, it sounds mysterious. People say, I buy my insurance from ARP, I travel by using ARP's travel agency, or I rent cars from ARP. 
Well, we're not that AARP. <laughs> the AARP that I represent and you're a member of is the Social Agenda Community Engagement AARP. That's a nonprofit, nonpartisan 5014C, which means we can raise funds and we can advocate for social agenda issues without getting into trouble with the IRS. So that's the AARP that uh, I am part of. And as far as uh, the work that we do at AARP, you know, Stephen Hornberger uh, talked about age-friendly community. That's a signature program. But AARP has, in California, about 3.3 million members. About 300,000 uh, are here in this region. So we represent them. And we focus on programs at the community level that will um, reverse, perhaps, or disrupt aging. So the, the, the concept of resiliency, longevity, those are disruptors of aging. So we focus on programs working with uh, nonprofit-like-minded uh, organizations and local government agencies. We work on programs that will help our adult, uh, older adult population to achieve that uh, level of uh, comfort, uh, through programs and uh, laws locally to make their communities more livable so they can stay in place and age gracefully and with dignity in their own communities. So that's the focus of AARP. You know, the big themes when it comes to the programs we focus on would be um, financial security, right, caregiving, um, Medicare, Social Security, we weigh in on those issues. At a very granular level, we realize that uh, demography is destiny, right? Uh, the future in America will be a lot more of us than the younger folks. And it has significance when it comes to policies. Uh, translated, it really means uh, your mortality and morbidity will depend in the zip code where you live. Right. Uh, so there are some zip codes that are more fortunate than others, and ARP is working with local communities to ensure that there is access to health care, access to uh, uh, affordable and reliable uh, Internet connectivity. That's important nowadays. You can't operate without Wi-Fi connection. As a matter of fact, I understand that uh, Maslow has revised his... His, his hierarchy of needs and added Wi-Fi as a, as a basic need. So, so there you go. So uh, that is the ARP that uh, I represent, and many of you are members. Thank you very much. What I'm going to talk about during this conversation would be the AIDS-Friendly Community Program. Uh, when Stephen asked the question, how many are familiar with the program, few hands went up, and that's not too surprising. It's a, uh, like a secret program, but making, <laughs> making an impact in the community. So I'd like to talk more about that. Uh, I'd like to talk about resources available at ARP that you individually can, can access or organizations can uh, get resources from ARP to help them in their programs. And so that will be my, my charge here in the next uh, few minutes. And it's my pleasure and my honor to turn this mic over to the person that I work for 
and I'd like to be when I grow up. Thank you. <laughs> well, good thank you and good afternoon. Uh, I'm a non-specialist in the field. But I'm 101 years old. You know, I'm the centenarian that you've been talking about all day. I have aged. And I've reached the point where my gait is slowed down to a poke. My senses are no longer as sharp as they used to be. And when I grope for a word, the results are often dismal. <laughs> and I think most of the people who have lived through the Middle Ages know what I'm talking about. Every morning I check to make sure that all of the parts are still in place. <laughs> and I'm delighted when I get out of bed without the help of a caregiver. So what I want to talk about is resilience in a very personal sense. The kind of thing that we can't really quantify yet. It's something in your mind, and I can't emphasize enough the importance of the mind. And that makes me very weary when I think of Alzheimer's and dementia and people who've lost control of their world. Uh, in a very real sense, for me, resilience is the ability to adapt to change. We change throughout our lives. But when we reach a certain age, things we were used to doing, we can't do anymore. I, I remember learning how to tie my shoes, my mother teaching me. And then there are the mornings when I lean over and those fingers just won't let me do it the way I used to. So I have to adapt. And the key to resilience in old age to me is your ability to adapt. Now, uh, I was married for 57 years. Uh, I worked a long time in the U.S. Foreign Service, did a lot of what's called diplomatic work, but the real tie in my life was my wife, my soulmate. And when she became ill, I became her caregiver. That was a very important change in life. And it's the resilience within yourself to do the things that you want to do that make the difference. When my wife passed away, my wife got ill and we needed better medical care. We came here to San Diego. 
I'm a San Franciscan by birth, uh, a California UC Berkeley graduate, uh, and I spent most of my adult life in the Foreign Service. We came back to California, Ellie got ill, and we looked for medical care. We came here, and we moved into an independent living retirement community. And that became terribly important because the community became our world. And we cared for each other. We took care of each other. And our community offers exercise and swimming and social activities, uh, buses to concerts and and to uh, various other events, but we take care of our own medical care. And fortunately, uh, my medical care is tied to Allison Moore, and I can't be more grateful for that, and that's one of the great resiliences that I found a medical post to which I can associate. My community leaves it up to each of us to determine how we want to take care of ourselves. I have a part-time caregiver now. But above all, I've had to learn how to do things for myself if I want to maintain my identity. And that's what I think resilience is all about. And I, I want to end this in a kind of a very personal way. When I was a preteen, I learned that I had a major hearing loss. And I was faced with the problem of feeling sorry for myself, but fortunately my family and my doctor made me realize that's ridiculous. So I learned lip reading to relate to the hearing world. I went to law school. I graduated from law school. And I had to have a specialty. Resilience requires, if you're going to maintain your identity, you have something you can relate to. Lip reading, fortunately for me, was very helpful, useful. And in the post-World War II period, technology developed new hearing aids. And instead of the one that I wore with a hood on my head, a microphone here and batteries in each pocket, I had something I could stick in my ear and I could begin to follow conversations. And then in my 80s, I developed macular and dry eye. And I can't read lips anymore. And I'm dependent on technology. I don't hear all the conversations, but I hear enough of them to remain relevant to the world. And I think in my case, that again is resilience. And finally, I want to say, uh, 
macular also has deprived me of the ability to do the kind of socioeconomic and political research I did over a lifetime. So what I'm doing now is writing novels. <laughs> I'm taking all of these creatures running around in my head and putting them down on paper. I'm trying to translate a lifetime into a reality. And that, again, I think is what resilience is about. And I don't know how you measure it, because it's true of everybody in this room that you have resilience. And every time you face a crisis, you have to draw from within yourself to find the way to be resilient. And I think that's enough to say for now. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for that. And um, I think, yes, we, we all want to be you when we grow up. Um, Lord help you. <laughs> so um, so let's have, we have plenty of time for a little bit of a discussion here. And then, of course, we'll open it up to, to the audience as well. One of the things that we've heard a lot today about is the idea of intergenerational community and working together uh, across the lifespan, um, playing together. And I wonder what each of you thinks about how resilience plays a role in that or how the fact that older adults do have so much resilience, what that could help our younger generation who really are struggling, a lot of them now, right? High rates of suicide, a lot of mental health concerns, um, uh, you know, related to the pandemic, related to social media, how um, can the resilience that we see in older adults help um, all ages uh, as we combine together in kind of this community? May I? Go ahead. You, you're posing probably the most important political question that our country is facing today because we are no longer the country in which I was born. I grew up in California with six million people, essentially white, Protestant, middle class. We're living in a country today which is a mixture of all races, creeds, and cultures. And we are at the point of having to come to grips with how we live in a multicultural world. We're being tested as a country now. And people need to think, not act. And that's true of the proponents of one position or another. There's a time when we must come together and find, as a people, a resilience within our own institutions that allows us to accept the fact that we are all united 
and that we have a basic premise under the Constitution to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. I, I could not agree more. Uh, I think there are micro examples of intergenerational programs that are happening in our communities that lend value to sharing of wisdom from older adults to young folks teaching older adults technology. I think that's a space where there's a kind of a value proposition and a win-win for both generations. I am ARP or representing ARP, so I'm not supposed to be partisan. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to stay away from politics. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, if you look at the lay of the land, there are more, I think, examples of intergenerational relationships overseas uh, in countries where communities are the central focus of living as opposed to kind of the individual pursuit of happiness. So Japan is a good example, I think. Uh, you know, if you have read Blue Zones, right, uh, it highlights areas where there are many of him uh, in those communities, and one of the key success factors in those communities, intergenerational relationship. So uh, those of us who are in the business of... Uh, advocacy and outreach and education in the business of coming up with programs, sometimes we forget that the solutions, in fact, are already there. And the, the prescription should not be top-down. It should be, I think there's value in terms of bringing in resources, provide guidance and training, but some of the lessons that can be learned are already in the community. So listening to the community and being humbled is one of the lessons that I've learned at ARP. We don't go in there and prescribe. We listen first and uh, provide support and assistance. I would just add, this is really a, a work that uh, is, is inspiring at the community level. And I, I would just say that the research on intergenerational programs is pretty encouraging, both from the perspective of the benefits to especially ones that are uh, showcasing uh, older adults uh, helping younger at-risk youth show, show remarkable effects on, on children uh, as well as older adults, uh, in, including cognitive benefits in participating in volunteering uh, and, and participating in meaningful and purposeful activity. Uh, and so I think uh, really my thought is that San Diego is actually a home to uh, a remarkable number of these programs and um, they need not be complicated. They need not be uh, sweeping. So having an a example uh, would be a, having a daycare that's uh, relatively co-located with an independent living facility and having some just proximity, I, I think, is, is a place to start. Um, and I think really uh, starting at a smaller community level and showcasing these programs and then learning f sort of best practices in, in running them is, is uh, really a, a way that a community can... Uh, leverage all of its community members. Great. Um, I wonder also if you all could comment on we, the, another theme that I've heard throughout today is about um, inequality in the path of aging in terms of um, uh, the longevity, in terms of health, and the role of the um, societal structures in kind of perpetuating that inequality. And I'm wondering what 
the role of a focus on resilience might be to improving, the, to, to lifting up those. Um, and one thought I had just to, as a stimulus <laughs> is that um, folks who have been traditionally marginalized in our country um, have learned from a very young age how to function under those society pressure, societal pressures. So have some resilience already than going into later life. So what can we learn from that that will allow us to have us all be able to benefit from these increases in longevity and healthy aging that are coming down the pike? That's a tough question. Uh, uh, it's, uh, you, can, you can learn from history. Uh, and guide policies, I think, by understanding history. And definitely there are significant disparities. Uh, You see it here in the U.S., you see it overseas. And I think it will require a structural change to have sustainable solutions when it comes to those problems. Uh, But I think there are opportunities where you can work with a group, an organization, to make an impact, right? So the AIDS-friendly community framework is a terrific framework. Stephen read the eight domains of AIDS-friendly. AIDS-friendly is really working with local jurisdictions, your county, your cities, your municipalities, to create policies that can be implemented around built environments, parks and recreation, uh, senior community centers, pedestrian lanes, safety in the streets, lighted streets. It could be as simple as these to help communities and the residents of those communities feel safe and comfortable to AIDS in place as opposed to moving to Arizona or Nevada, right, or or, uh, uh, get admitted to a long-term care facility. So I think those are opportunities to address the issue of equity. And I think we are fortunate here in the San Diego region, the county is an age-friendly county. So there's accountability when it comes to being a member of this network of communities because they have a plan in place and they have to implement those plans with communities. Uh, The county is uh, holding regular round tables with communities who are members of this uh, network around the region to exchange uh, best practices around helping communities. So aside from the county, you have Chula Vista, you have National City, La Mesa, Carlsbad. These are communities that are committed to implement policies that will make our lives in our communities more livable. I think that is the pathway, right? to address the issue of equity. May I also add, I agree with everything you said, and I think the primary purpose of education should be to make us think and to make us tolerant. Uh, we, We tend to shout at each other when we disagree when we should be logical opening doors for that conversation. 
And I note that in Minnesota, there are now experiments in communities to get them people on the right and the left and the center together to talk out problems, not to defend positions. And uh, I, I know that if we extend it uh, to a broader, uh, a broader national scope, it's not going to happen overnight. This is a process. And uh, I don't believe that any country has lived in constant revolution as this country has. Uh, I think one of, the, one of the things that bothers me when I occasionally am asked to speak in a seminar or at the university is how little we know of history. We have reached a point where at one of the local universities I was giving a speech, a st well, I was participating in a seminar, and I said FDR, and hands went up. Can you imagine? I lived through the Depression. I lived through World War II. I was appalled that the people had not yet understood not only who Franklin Delano Roosevelt was, but the process our country went through. We have to remember that in the 1920s, the largest social group was the KKK. And look into our own history in California and find out who was in the KKK at that time. I remember the 30s. If we don't have a sense of history, we can't have a dialogue. We don't have to relive the mistakes of the past. And that, I think, starts. And that's, that's a good part of resilience, is understanding who we are, where we came from, and what the problem is we're dealing with. That's great. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you to start writing down your questions if you haven't already and, and um, putting those in. Um, but I also wanted to start with just a, a question for each of you, which is what do you think would be the, the best way to enhance resilience um, any time in life, but particularly in late life? Um, you know, what does the evidence show? What have, has worked personally for you? in terms of enhancing, we hear that there's a lot of resilience out there, but everybody would like to be a little bit more resilient, right? A little quicker to bounce back, a little bit um, less um, overwhelmed by, by stress. So what would be some strategies? Yeah, sure. I think um, I really appreciate the conversation in terms of, first, how, how we measure and think about resilience and how it is a pretty ethereal, difficult concept to, to really put a, a number on. But I guess a couple of thoughts I have are, are that, you know, there certainly is a, a capacity to improve your physiological resilience. But I also think what I've heard today uh, is really that you can't and shouldn't try to do it alone uh, and that other people 
uh, are critical, uh, and being uh, resilient uh, is is a kind of a public or social phenomenon too. Um, I think what also science has shown, uh, and actually research uh, that uh, is is it counter to the, the the really harmful phrase, which is that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And that is really uh, not uh, a helpful phrase at all because I think uh, even uh, aged mice uh, in uh, the Salk Institute, for example, can learn uh, in an enriched environment to do really amazing things. Uh, and so I think uh, really uh, focusing on your capacity to change throughout and then focusing on your, 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 your physiological state uh, and then there are some specific psychological or mind-focused uh, uh, strategies, which include focusing on gratitude uh, as well as um, focusing on savoring positive events uh, and adapting uh, uh, valued activities to fit your capabilities are all kinds of skills that we've learned what older people who are excellent, uh, resilient seem to be quite good at. Yeah, so storytelling is very important. So I'm going to take this fellow on the road so he can tell his story about resiliency. And there is a kind of a selective bias when it comes to resiliency. You made a point. We are all resilient, but just the mere path, the mere experience of surviving you know, many uh, challenges along the way. We've made it. And so we have individually good stories to tell. So storytelling is important, right? Uh, the other piece, and there's a, a policy piece to resiliency, and that is uh, it has to be intentional in terms of providing resources to communities and individuals to help them when there is trouble, when they need help, to rise and be given another opportunity to, to, to fight the battle again another day, right? There should be a provision to that. Uh, to allow that recovery, right? So it's where the community uh, spirit comes into play. Some countries do it on their own. We are a wealthy country in spite of our problems, and we can afford, I think, to help others. It's a uh, long-term investment anyways. You help them, and hopefully they will recover and move on and uh, be more resilient. So there is the storytelling, there is the, the policy piece when it comes to intentional social programs that can provide good outcomes. Um, and I think if we do that, uh, we have a, a shot in terms of building up that resiliency. Uh, I agree with everything you said and would add that it is very important that we understand the problems we're dealing with. Uh, we have a tendency to get superficial impressions and we throw money at it and we think that's going to solve the problem. And all it does is make some people richer and the poor poorer. Uh, and that's to a substantial degree led to a kind of disaffection with government. Uh, I, I think it's a very delicate question to enter into, but your question actually 
requires us to think through what it is we're trying to do. And I found in my experience overseas in U.S. aid programs that I can't do it for them. The answer has to come out of the community itself. And the leadership has to be trained in the community. There's leadership in every community. But we haven't yet figured out how to channel that leadership. And I have found uh, in, if you're taking that result, you're not going to get instant miracles. And in our political system, we want instant miracles. We want that problem that existed for a century to disappear right now because we're putting some money to fight it. And we really don't know what the problem is. And the problem persists. And the people lose faith. So I, I urge that whatever we do, we take the time to understand that's very difficult to tell the politicians. And I've, I've had my, my share of disagreements over the years with people who are very bright and very able, but they don't think in the same way on each problem. And I, I urge we take the time to understand the problem we're trying to solve. Very wise. Um, I think we have time for one or two questions. Um, this is an interesting one. We've heard a lot of topics today, but we haven't really addressed ageism specifically. How can we be resilient in the face of ageism, which is really embedded in our beliefs, our institutions, and our media? So I'll tee off on that question because ARP is so focused on that issue. Uh, the older adult population now is different from the old, older adult population, say, 10, 15 years ago. Now, many of us uh, who have elected to retire or do part-time work still can contribute in many capacities, whether in a formal workforce, informal workforce, or volunteer work. So there's room for people 50-plus to play in that space. The challenge, I think, is the structure in the discipline of HR has not caught up with the times. Uh, remote work is an example. You know, After pandemic, the world has changed. But still, the, kind of the incumbent HR world is still resistant to the idea of flexible work. And that applies to 50-plus population. Most of us are willing to put in the time, work part-time, but to have some uh, in our own terms, if you will, within reason, right? Uh, there should be a negotiation as far as what that looks like. And so ageism is, comes in many forms, but that's one way of, of demonstrating itself. 
the stereotyping of ageism is real, right? It will require education. Uh, I'm going to give a plug to San Diego Foundation because they have a program now, and they're hiring people who have transition, if you will, from formalized work to some kind of a work arrangement to work with San Diego Foundation and communities to advance projects and community work. And they're looking for not necessarily retired people, but people who have experience working in the community who are willing to do this, not for the money, but for the love of making a difference. And so when they roll this out, many people could not understand this because they're looking at the job description. The job description is a starting point, right? You you, you do the work with a job description in mind, but you transform the job description to fit your personality and your competencies. And I think the program that San Diego Foundation is trying to do to hire these individuals is a good example of older adults who are willing to go back to work within a framework that is acceptable to them with a corporate kind of a relationship with San Diego Foundation and make a difference in the community. So at ARP, we're excited about this opportunity. If you are interested, talk to me. I can give you the name of the people at San Diego Foundation who is looking for candidates for this position. There's a funder that's putting his money where his uh, heart is in funding this program to hire people who are not ready to retire but would like to work and give back to the community in that kind of a work arrangement. So there are some solutions, uh, but uh, ageism is, is real, that's for sure. Great. Well, we have about one more minute, and so I just wanted to give each of you an opportunity. If you could give one nugget of wisdom of something that you think that each of the folks here today could take home with them, something that they could do or think about in a different way that would help to promote their own resilience and also promote this kind of future that we're, that we're all hopefully looking towards, which is a future where there is um, no ageism, where there's a recognition of everybody's unique strength and where there's a quality of healthy longevity. What would be the one recommendation that you would make? I think just to build on the last uh, comment, I mean, I think there is a huge amount of implicit bias that people carry within a, around aging uh, that is in them that they're probably not aware of. And so we've seen this in experiments where you show people stereotypical words of aging and actually the, their handwriting gets worse. Uh, there, there, there's there's a, an effect in there. And so I think if you could spend some time, a uh, couple of hours, just walking around your neighborhood as if you were an alien, and then just sort of think about ways in which you could uh, imagine that it could be improved to support people of all ages. Um, and, there are all, and often, I think, starting with things that would be simple. Uh, and a lot of this discussion is, is pretty overwhelming in terms of thinking of societal biases and sort of the challenges we face. But starting, starting something a little simple in your neighborhood um, and, and working to make a, a, a simple change might be a, a place to start. Yeah, firstly, you have to congratulate yourselves for uh, being resilient, right? Uh, so you start from within. Um, resiliency, I think, uh, is mostly a personal thing, although there is an external um, component to it. Uh, so at ARP, we're looking for programs and and 
and initiatives to create real possibilities for 50 plus, right? And so uh, we're committed to do that. We provide resources to individuals as well as uh, community organizations to help them realize their potential um, and continue the journey. And resiliency is definitely going to be an important component. But we'll listen to the guy who has the secret sauce when it comes to resiliency, right? Uh, he has the prescription. I say, first, keep active. Make your mind work for you and do everything you want to do with moderation. That's the best advice I can think of. Amen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.